This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your great idea into reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're showcasing your work or selling products of any kind. With beautiful templates and the ability to customize just about anything, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And if you do get stuck, Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support is there to help. Head to squarespace.com manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com manliness, code manliness for 10% off. Off your first purchase of a website or domain. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Earlier this year, I did a show about the benefits of meditation. It's episode number 439 for those who want to check it out. Shortly after that interview, I came across a book called The Buddha Pill, which takes a critical look at the research on meditation and exposes some of the weaknesses of the hype that currently surrounds it. As someone who loves to look at both sides of an issue, I was certainly intrigued, and today on the show, I talked to one of the co-authors of The Buddha Pill. I began my conversation with Miguel Farias, a psychologist and therapist trained at Oxford University by discussing how the current mindfulness craze we're experiencing in the 21st century isn't entirely new, but is similar to a trend which emerged in the 1960s and 1970s around the practice of transcendental meditation. Miguel explains how meditation research began with transcendental meditation, the limits of that research, and why transcendental meditation has now been eclipsed by mindfulness meditation. In the second half of the show, Miguel shares some problems with the Western approach to mindfulness meditation, including detaching it from a spiritual framework, making it a self-centered affair, and using it to take a more passive stance to life. We also explore the the often overlooked downsides of meditation, including the fact that it can sometimes have the very opposite of the calming, centering effect people are seeking. We end our conversation discussing whether meditation is truly effective in reducing stress, anxiety, and depression, Miguel's conclusion on whether people should practice it, and if you should ultimately feel guilty if you decide not to. Really fascinating show. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash Budapil. Miguel Farias, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be talking to you, Brad. So you are a psychological researcher. You've done some time as a therapist as well. And you got this book out called The Buddha Pill, where you take a critical look at research on meditation and the effects of it. So how did you get started looking at meditation and the psychological effects of it? Yeah, it wasn't originally intended to be as critical as it turned out to be. Because I'm, uh, I'm actually a fan of meditation overall. I've been doing it for, for a while. Um, so what happened is that when I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology back in Lisbon, in Portugal, I became more and more interested in spiritual practices. And I mean, there's been some research from the psychological perspective on on religion and religious practices, but mostly on on standard stuff. So there is a a growing literature, for instance, on religion and health, mostly coming from the U.S. But there was very little on spiritual practices such as energy healing and also meditation. So I actually, when I came to do my doctorate in Oxford, I was already interested in trying to ascertain to what an extent the claims that, there's lots of claims, starting in the 60s uh, with many new age ideas that if you do this, if you do this technique of meditation, if you do this kind of chanting, this will radically transform you. So I was interested in looking into that. 
back when I started my doctorate. Then I realized that this is actually really, really difficult to to try to measure and quantify. I mean, starting with personal change and then these people are doing lots of different practices. So I ended up postponing that part of my question for some 10 years until I met the director of a small charity in Oxford that organizes yoga and meditation classes across most British prisons. And they had lots of anecdotal evidence, letters from prisoners who had been trying out yoga and meditation, but they didn't have any quantitative study. And when I looked at the literature, I realized that there had never been any, I mean, nicely conducted randomized controlled trial looking at the effects of yoga and meditation in prisons. So that's what really got me started looking into the science of meditation. It was this collaboration with this charity called the Prison Phoenix Trust. And we'll talk more about that because I think it's interesting and in sort of the findings you, you you did do a study with them. But before we get to that, let's talk about the history of meditation research and the history of meditation as part of you know a cultural phenomenon. So right now in the 21st century, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness meditation. You can take courses on it, there's books on it, there's blog articles on it, and they're all talking about how you know the mindfulness meditation can transform you, can reduce anxiety, alleviate depression, reduce stress. But as you mentioned, this isn't new. You talked about in the 60s and 70s, we had something very similar with transcendental meditation. So for those who aren't familiar with it, what is trans- transcendental meditation and and how is it how's how is it similar to the cultural phenomenon that we're seeing with mindful meditation today? Yeah, no, really really interesting and good questions. So many, many people of my parents' generation, for instance, so who, who were in their 20s and 30s during the 1960s and 70s, they would be acquainted with the idea of transcendental meditation. What's really interesting about this meditation technique is that it was really what we call the first wave of the scientific studies of meditation up to then you had these small-scale studies, mostly looking at experts. But then Maharishi, who's the founder of TM, Transcendental Meditation, shows up. The Beatles are also helping in in spread the words about Maharishi and TM. And the technique is really simple. While lots of other meditation techniques are embedded within a larger belief system and you have to do lots of other rituals. This one only involves a small ceremony when you learn the technique. And the technique is really simple. You basically meditate for 20 minutes, twice per day, and you focus on the word, which we call a mantra. It's a sound, actually. It's not even coming from Sanskrit. It's just a sound that Maharishi sad that he received from his teachers. So people are given a sound, they focus on this sound for 20 minutes twice a day. And I mean, within a few years, you had quite a lot of people who were being introduced to this technique during the, the 60s and then throughout the 70s. Many of them were young graduates from good US universities. It also comes then to, to Europe so I mention in, in our book that I was actually introduced to meditation via TM as a child. I mean, I didn't practice it then, but my parents had just done a course on it. 
And Maharishi, who was a graduate of physics, so he actually studied physics before he dropped out and then became a guru. When he came to the West, he had a very good insight that the only way to pull meditation out of a sort of metaphysical, new age-ish niche would be to have science backing it up. So he contacted a number of researchers and they started in what would become really what uh, this first wave of scientific studies of meditation. And in so this happens, I mean, 20, 30 years before mindfulness became a really big thing. I mean, bigger now than, than TM was, but I mean, there was so much enthusiasm about the growth of TM that by 1975, Maharishi thought that it's a kind of new age-ish psychological idea that the sort of the, the essence or the waves around the practice of all these hundreds of thousands of people practicing TM would affect the global consciousness of our planet, which would bring about uh, an era of peace. Well, in fact, they, they tried doing studies to prove that. You mentioned one, I think it was in Washington, D.C. or around there, where they did a, had a whole bunch of people doing transcendental meditation at the, the same time for a month. And then yeah, they, they, they tried to find reduction in crime. Yeah. So I usually mention that study because it's the largest, single, most expensive study ever conducted on meditation. There's been large grants, but that is a single study that cost them something like four million US dollars back then because they had to bring all these people from different places in the US, concentrate them in a place in Washington, DC, and then they kept them for some weeks to meditate and they increased the number of meditators. It was actually a really interesting idea. I have to say it's quite unique. There really isn't anything like this in the study of, of meditation or even on the idea that any kind of individual practice may have such a social, large social effect. The idea was that it would affect this, this global consciousness of the planet and it would decrease the, the levels of stress at these somewhat... Um, ethereal or non-physical level, but this would then filter down into people's individual consciousnesses and uh, that would bring about a reduction in things like violent crime, burglary, rape. And um, the, the paper shows that it did decrease overall, uh, but when we looked better at what was happening is that they didn't report everything. So, for instance, there had been a, a crime, a single mass murder committed during the period in which they were studying, but they considered that what we call a statistical outlier, which means it was a single event, um, so it's very, very different from a normal distribution of how crime, even murder, would happen. So they deleted that from the data set, which is why they didn't report it. So the results aren't as as stellar as they they seem to be at first. 
So, you know, besides that one study, as you mentioned, there was a lot of research around transcendental meditation that was getting published in prestigious journals. I mean, so what were these research articles saying that are the results of meditation? And when you look back at that research, say, you know, now they're 40 years later, do those, do those findings hold up? Uh, so the first paper by Transcendental Meditation researchers was actually published in the journal Science, so one of the major scientific outlets for science publications. And the kind of claim and the kind of measurements that they're interested in is very much what we'll then are going to find. So they're interested in how it affects our physiology, our psychology, and our well-being. So there was a plethora of studies looking at simple things like, does it affect your heart rate? Does it affect how you breathe? Does it affect your levels of anxiety, stress, depression? Does it affect your overall well-being? But also things like, does it change your personality traits? If you're particularly anxious or neurotic, does it lower your levels of neuroticism? Does it increase your IQ levels? Does it make you act in a more empathic, social-oriented way? It's very much what we're still interested in when we study mindfulness these days. And overall, the, they had positive results. There was a, a large meta-analysis published some years ago, which looks at both at transcendental meditation and mindfulness. And because, because the times were different, there are some methodological issues which are now somewhat outdated in, in the sense that they have less randomized controlled trials that ma- mindfulness has. But that the main reason for that is that back in the 70s and 80s, there weren't so many psychological trials conducted in, in this way. But many of the physiological results um, stand out, such as the, the benefits for heart problems. So quite a lot of these studies are, are still good research, and they give us a sort of decent indication of how meditation can affect your, your psychological well-being and your physical health. But as you mentioned uh, earlier, researching or doing experiments on meditation is hard because, you know, typically the best, you know, the typical, the best study to do is a, a double-blind placebo. Yeah. But the thing is like, how do you, how do you do a placebo for meditation, right? Yeah, this is an ongoing debate. That's a very good point. Many meditation researchers think that you can't do a placebo because you can't find anything that would replicate meditation and that would also be cheating on the participants. I feel more ambivalent. There were a couple of earlier studies with TM in the mid-1970s by Jonathan Smith in which he created I mean, a very, a very ingenious placebo for meditation where he wrote a whole manual about a a pseudo meditation technique which consisted of simply sitting down for 20 minutes and doing nothing but he convinced participants that this was a new meditation technique which put together the theories of all other meditation techniques and Perhaps because of this, 
that he convinced people that this was going to work, the outcomes he, he got from this placebo meditation were the same as for TM. So both the TM condition and this placebo meditation condition had better outcomes than those who weren't doing any meditation. And the problem with this is that it leads us to another ongoing debate, uh, which is whether meditation is just a form of relaxation or if it's doing something more than relaxation. Okay, so there's a debate on whether meditation is just relaxing you, that's all it's doing. So like, what is the consensus in the, the psychological field on that? Well, th- there really is no consensus. There, there are attempts within some studies to compare this to relaxation, and sometimes the results are different, but that doesn't happen always. But the thing is, most of these problems are embedded within a context, which is what exactly is meditation and what exactly is relaxation. And most of the meditation researchers aren't aware that physical relaxation, the way it started out in the West, is very similar to that of meditation. It was coming out of certain spiritual traditions, and it was an attempt to take out some of these techniques and make them purely secular, right? But the kind of processes you find in simple physical relaxation have some clear overlaps with that of meditation, in the sense that you're for instance, if you're doing muscular relaxation, you're focusing slowly through various parts of your body, your muscles. Sometimes you're contracting them and then relaxing them. But the, the kind of mental process involved in this, the kind of focusing, it does have many similarities with the kind of focused process of meditation. And another issue that it's hard to resolve too um, is this. So, you know, you mentioned that study where they had the the placebo set up where it's basically a guy came up with sort of a fake meditation process where they just sat and did nothing yeah. and it worked. And then someone meditated and it worked to reduce stress. So like one issue is like, does meditation work because people just want it to work? Oh, well, the more we know about the so-called placebo effect, the more we know that expecting something to work is part of the reason why it works. This has become so prominent in the placebo studies that they're now doing what they call open placebo trials, where they explicitly tell people that I'm going to give you a placebo. And I'm going to give you a placebo because there's all these studies showing that placebo works. And there's, the results are astonishing. Even things which we think of as completely physical, such as lower back pain, they, they seem to have very good results when they give these open placebos. So undoubtedly, with meditation, particularly now that there is this sort of media hype that this is going to, to cure everything, that your expectation about it is certainly going to interfere with the outcomes. So... Um, TM was really big in the 60s and 70s, and it had a huge cultural impact. I don't think a lot of people know, if you're younger, that a lot of the self-help gurus that we see today, Deepak Chopra, uh, John Gray, the men are from Mars, women women are from Venus guy, like they all started out in transcendental meditation. That's true, yes. Right. Um, but it dwindled. Like you don't, I haven't really, I've never met 
a 20-something transcendental meditation practitioner. So why did TM dwindle in popularity? That, that's a really good question. So there's still people doing TM and researching TM and publishing on it. There's still at least one university of transcendental meditation in the US. And they, they somewhat resent the fact that mindfulness has become so big. And most of these mindfulness researchers don't even cite in their articles the, the TM research. I, I think it's simply because they don't know of it, just because researchers are very focused on what's going on right now, and they don't tend to read what's happened in the past, which sometimes isn't very a good way of doing science, but that's how it is. No, different things happened with, with TM. One is that they they sort of kept the trademark for it within the organization. So the major difference in terms of the expansion of TM versus mindfulness is that TM is still organized by a central organization. Sorry, organized organization. It's still held by the central organization. You need to have a certified teacher that introduces you to the technique. There's a kind of formal initiation and you pay for this. Well, most of the people doing mindfulness courses, you also pay for them, but it's it's become much more liberated. So anyone can learn from anyone. There is no central organization. There is no central control. In this sense, TM claims that we have much better control over the quality of our teachers because they're all trained in the same way by us, which doesn't happen with mindfulness. And this may, may be true. The other thing which happened with TM, going back to, to the mid-late 70s, is that they, they, they got somewhat enthusiastic, not just with these claims that this would change the world, but Maharishi thought that as more people got into TM, he started talking about advanced TM techniques, which would allow people to develop all kinds of paranormal powers, such as levitation. So the idea of levitation became a big, a big embarrassment. They even developed, well, how do you call it? So while sitting cross-legged, and there's lots of wonderful pictures of some of these early TM meditators, in which they seem to be floating, but in fact they're jumping while cross-legged in this advanced state of, of TM. So it became somewhat of an embarrassment because people didn't actually levitate. But there were these kind of paranormal claims that couldn't be verified. I think that so that's that didn't help the image from a certain point onwards. But I think it had more to do with the how this was marketed and the fact that they held the control, which is why it didn't keep growing. No, I, I should say that with mindfulness, there are similar utopian claims. The paranormal stuff is is less clear, although there are still ideas of experiencing pure consciousness. But there's I mean, people like Kabat-Zinn, who's the, the creator of the major secularized format of mindfulness, he's, he's become more and more open about his utopian beliefs on how mindfulness is going to change 
I mean, the world in, in various ways. So let's talk about the difference between mindfulness meditation and TM. So TM, you said uh, there's a mantra that you repeat. It could be Om, I think is the most popular yeah. one. What does mindfulness meditation do that's different? So the kind of, while in TM and other meditation techniques, you're either focusing on the sound, the mantra, or an image, or the breath. Uh, <clears throat> with... With mindfulness, the idea is that you just keep the focus on the flow of consciousness in a non-judgmental way. There are different definitions. Even Kabat-Zinn is somewhat ambiguous about what essentially characterizes mindfulness. But as, as a technique coming from Buddhist meditation, the idea is to keep this, this kind of overall awareness of your of your everything that comes into your perception, to your awareness, and, and let it go. So you, you just keep focusing on the flow of your awareness without focusing on anything in particular. And there, I mean, there's a lot of research now done about mindfulness meditation, as you mentioned. Are, are the same problems that existed with the first wave of research on meditation, does it, do they still exist now with mindfulness meditation research? Um, well... Yes, basically yes. There's now I mean some thousand over a few thousand papers published using mindfulness. And there's even more looking at mindfulness not just as a meditation technique but as a kind of um, cognitive ability to be mindful of in a non-judgmental way. But most of these studies I mean have lots of methodological problems. Most of them don't have control groups. Most of them aren't randomized controlled trials. Even, even when there are randomized controlled trials, um, we published a meta-analysis of mindfulness and compassion, loving-kindness, meditation studies, where we found out that there are other kinds of biases introduced even in, in randomized controlled trials. For instance, you tend to become more compassionate in the studies where the meditation teacher is also one of the authors in the published study, which means that there's some kind of experimental effect, which happens when I mean, we know it happens in, in most experiments, that you want your experiments to work, therefore implicitly you bias participants to act in a certain way. So there, yes, the basic answer, yes, there's still methodological problems with this kind of research with mindfulness. And so another issue with meditation research or just the idea that meditation can have benefits for you. So the first one is, you know, meditation might work just because you you want it to work. Meditation can just be a form of relaxation. But another problem with meditation that whether it works or not is that okay, meditation is originally a spiritual practice. But it, the way it's practiced in the West, it's been stripped of that underlying spiritual nature, right? You can just be mindful without having to identify with any sort of religious practice. But can meditation be as effective without being part of some ethical or spiritual framework? Yeah, there's, there's ongoing debates about this. The, the problem is, we tend to think that meditation was a thing, was a technique that people have been practicing for thousands of years. And, and it doesn't, that's not the reality. There's different forms of techniques, which in the West we call contemplation. We didn't even call them meditation. But the thing is, this is just one 
part of a whole package which involved lots of other things. But for instance, if you go to, to Asia and you go into a Buddhist temple, you don't see people meditating there. People go there to pray, to ask things to the Buddha. So it's very similar to what happens in a, in a church or in a synagogue. But we've developed this curious idea that Buddhists and Hindus have been doing these things for eight hours a day. And that's, that's not true. Even people who were sort of monks and nuns who did it for you know, more, more frequently, this was just one part of the whole package. And they never expected the meditation technique per se to work out, I mean, some kind of wonders. It was the whole package. It was the whole way of life. It was renouncing your worldly life, giving up everything, and studying the sacred scriptures, whatever. I mean, whether they're Buddhist or the Bhagavad Gita in the Hindu context. So, so that's one of the problems that we're we're sort of ignorant about how this works. That people never expected meditation to be the thing, but it was the whole package. And most of this, so most of these techniques were only used by a very very restricted elite of these people who left everything behind. Uh, which were a tiny minority. The other problem, which is, I'm not sure I'd call it a problem. It's it's really, really interesting. It's just the way that we think about the world these days, that everything can be used to be turned into something else, into a, a mental health gadget or whatever. And this, of course, goes completely against the spirit of some of these world religions like Buddhism. You were never expected to be using any of these techniques for your own personal gain. No, no, it was quite the opposite. You were supposed to use this to erase the idea of personal gains and to erase your sense of self, to become more selfless, not to become a better self. Um, so that's that's really, really creating a, I mean, an interesting existential paradox, but the intention is very different from the original. We're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors. All right, if you are like me and you wear glasses, you know, finding a pair of stylish new frames can be a big hassle. You got to drive across town to the optician. They might not even have a great selection there. What if I told you you can find a pair of stylish glasses from the comfort of your own home? Well, you can, thanks to Warby Parker. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. Their home try-on program allows you to order five pairs of glasses shipped directly to your door where you can try them on in the comfort of your own home. I did this. I picked out five frames that I thought would look good on my face, but you can't really tell. Can you actually put them on? Put them on, ask my wife, my my kids what they thought. You can try the frames for five days before sending them back in a free prepaid return shipping label. There's no obligation to purchase. It's 100% free. And when you do decide if there's a frame you like, you send all the frames back, you say which ones you like the best, and then they'll add your prescription and you order. That easy. And glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And here's a nice thing. For every pair you buy, a pair is distributed to someone in need. So head to rbparker.com slash manliness, order your free home try-ons today, choose the five frames you like to try on, mail the frames back, choose your favorite pair, have your prescription added, and order. Warby Parker makes your experience completely risk-free and free shipping all around. Visit warbyparker.com slash manliness to begin your free home try-on experience today. And 
have an iPhone X, make sure to download Warby Parker's app where you can use their brand new feature, Find Your Fit. Find Your Fit uses the iPhone X true depth camera to map and measure key facial features. Using these measurements, Find Your Fit recommends approximately 12 Warby Parker frames that are likely to best fit your face. The process is seamless and takes only a few seconds. Also by Squarespace, take from me, someone who's built a few websites. If you don't know how to code, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to do something wrong, put a slash, mess up a quotation mark, and it's going to break your site. So the other option is hire a designer, but if you're just starting out, don't have any capital, well, that's a no-go option as well. Squarespace allows you to get a great looking website up in minutes, which is a point and click of your mouse. Makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project, whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, and more. Squarespace is the tool for you. They got beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks. You can easily make a beautiful website yourself. And Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. And if you ever run into a snag, you can get help with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. If you'd like to try this out, go to squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash manliness for a free trial. Offer code manliness to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And now back to the show. Right. So us individualistic Westerners had made, have made a selfless act into a selfish act in a way. Yeah. I, ha- I have to say, I have to, to, to create a nuance here in the sense that within, within the Eastern traditions, there is a variety of ways in which these contemplative meditative techniques have been used. So within some Indian schools of Tantra, some people were using this to try to obtain particular paranormal powers or even to extend your i mean your life so that you could live for much longer i mean concerns that we have had for a very long time so it's not that they weren't there weren't people thinking of how i can use this for my own personal gain back then there's that's there's always been that possibility it's just that that used to be the sort of the exception, but it's become now the norm. Yeah, and I think the other issue of when you try to extract meditation, spiritual practice from that ethical framework, you know, you get you you get the idea that you can become more compassionate just by sitting alone in your room, thinking loving kindness thoughts. I mean, they can help, but like really, the workaday stuff of actually being compassionate is being around people right? That annoy you and actually being compassionate in that, that, that moment where you have to do it, right? So like with Buddhism, there's a, you know, you're embedded in a community that reinforces those ideas as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, as a psychologist, I am somewhat disappointed that we've driven ourselves to think in a very counterintuitive and sometimes silly way. And th- there are various reasons why as psychological researchers, we have been pushed in this way. Well, mostly because there is money to do research and they want the research being done in a certain way. So part of our brain shuts off and we go where the money is, which is really stupid. And um, that it's not very helpful. Of course, I mean, any sensible psychologist would would tell you that you're absolutely right, that things done within a, a group context are usually much more powerful. The other thing that we know also from history is that whenever there are movements in which you seem to start caring more about 
ideas which drive you away from the world and social movement and within yourself. And this has been happening since ancient Greek. There have been philosophical movements that have said very similar things. Oh no, you just have to think in a different way. You don't have to care about about the world, about politics. This is a sort of coping out thing. It's like we've reached one of those civilizational stages where we just don't think that much of what we do can have any real influence in the world. So we become, we, we are just driven much more inwards because we've sort of given up on the idea that as we can create groups of people that actually make a difference. And that's that's really sad. Yeah, uh, it's it's just where we are, the stage in, in which we are. I think that part of the, what is driving the interest in mindfulness is is actually um, a sort of hopelessness about our future and our current situation. And I think it also uh, speaks to the increased interest in Stoicism as well in the past decade, right? Where it, Stoicism is very similar. It's like, well, you know, the thing itself doesn't hurt you, just how you think about it, right? And, you know, there's nothing you can do, like, you know, then don't worry about it. It's okay. Yeah, yeah but, but there again, it's a very, very interesting example how Stoicism also happened at a particular historical moment when lots of people were feeling that, no, there's no point in engaging more with the social world as it is. Uh, let's just find another way of perfecting ourselves. So when you, you've taken a look at this research, I mean, are the claims that meditation proponents make, is there something to that? Doesn't, can it actually alleviate depression, for example? That's one you've seen, or anxiety, which are two mental health issues that a lot of people are struggling with today. So yes, but it can alleviate things like the, the better evidence is for people who have had three or more episodes of depression. So to prevent them from relapsing into depression. Depression is is a horrible thing. It's, it's a kind of a, I mean, I'm talking metaphorically, almost like a virus that stays within you, like, like malaria that never leaves. And um, if you've had it three times, then it's just the, the odds of you having it again just increase tremendously. And that's the reason why people like Mark Williams and, and others started looking at using mindfulness meditation. They, they were all doing cognitive behavior therapy and realized that there is this subgroup of people who keep getting depression and cognitive behavior therapy had its limits in how effective it could be. So they started looking elsewhere. And there's some good results for mindfulness when used within this context. What is curious is that it seems to work better for some people, even within this specific sample of recurrent depressed people. So those who have higher childhood trauma, they react better to meditation. And we still don't know why that is. Now, with things like anxiety, pain, stress, with anxiety and pain, for instance, there is some evidence that it works. There is moderate evidence that it can help you. For stress, there really is very, very weak evidence that it can help you. Strangely enough, because the first application of mindfulness by kabat was particularly directed at stress. but 
On the other hand, what I always try to highlight is that all the res- everything the results indicate is that it works differently for various problems, but it usually doesn't work better than other techniques or that nothing in the results shows that it's something miraculous or even quasi-miraculous. Okay, so it's not, the, the, the hype, there might be a lot of hype about it. So it, it can work for some people, might not work for other people. But what I thought was the interesting thing about this book, and the reason I, that it caught my eye when I first came across it is that whenever you talk out hear about or read about meditation, it's always positive. Like meditation can help, you know, depression, anxiety, stress, et cetera. But they never talk about the negatives, like the downsides of meditation. Um, right. But there's actually research on that. So walk us through what are, what are the downsides of meditating? So th- this is a sensitive issue. And th- there are people who feel very, very strongly about this in the sense that if there is literature going back to the early 70s showing that there are paradoxical effects. This was highlighted first with the physical relaxation literature. Some people have what they call a paradoxical reaction. This is supposed to make you feel more relaxed, but for some people it makes them more anxious. I mean, more anxious to the point of having a panic attack when you're supposed to be physically relaxing. So going back to the early 70s, you start to get First case studies of people who go on meditation retreats and they have psychotic episodes, some surveys showing that some people are getting more anxious and more depressed, that other people feel all sorts of unexpected things. So this has sort of been under the rug with mindfulness until the last few years. Actually, I think it was our book. I mean, that explicitly tried to address this. And we weren't expecting to do so. I remember that uh, when we wrote the book proposal, we wanted to have a chapter that focused on how meditation could be used for ill purposes. But we were more thinking like within some small religious groups, some people might use this to manipulate individuals. But when we were doing the research for the book, we then realized that there was this literature that had been mostly forgotten So basically, we still don't know why exactly it happens. Some people, we know that it happens. And now there is a general acknowledgement. What has happened since we've published the book until now is that there is a much more general acknowledgement, particularly amongst researchers, that these do happen. There are these so-called challenging experiences or even adverse effects associated with meditation. There is a huge disagreement about what may be the causes for this. Some would say that it has nothing to do with the meditation. The problem is with the individual's personal history or whatsoever. I think that's, that's rather arrogant. The straight answer is that we don't know yet. We don't know. Uh, There's evidence that sometimes it happens with people who have a mental health history Other times, people seem to have no mental health problems at all. Now, the the sort of spectrum of potential adverse events varies considerably. Most of these negative effects aren't the most extreme, such as a psychosis. 
most of them have simply to do with increases in anxiety or depression. Those would be the majority of them. The people who seem to do it for longer tend to experience more difficulties, but we're still unclear why that is. If it's simply because if you're doing it for much longer, you, it's just much more likely that through your normal experience something will happen, and because you're doing meditation every day, that there will be a coincidence. But it may also be that if you're using meditation for some kind of spiritual or self-exploration purpose, that you may do it for longer periods than other people do, or more intensely, and this may, may indeed be causing something unexpected. Yeah, I think you mentioned one person from the research where they 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 did mindfulness meditation. They they got to the point where like they kind of lost themselves. Like they didn't know where they like I don't know. This like they didn't feel good. Something didn't feel right. And as soon as they stopped the meditation, like that feeling went away. Yes, yes. So what what we're trying to tell people that one of the major problems now is that the the mindfulness and meditation teachers because they have this very naive, positive idea of meditation, most of them don't have it in them to tell people to stop meditating when they're feeling something difficult or unpleasant, which is what usually they should say. Well, if this isn't working, you should stop, and we have to see what's what's happening. But then, again, most of these people don't have any mental health training, and they don't have also a... a a very long experience with meditation. So it's overall a, a poor combination. Right, and they're incentivized to keep people meditating as well, right? Because they, they make money if you keep doing the course or keep going for classes. And I think you also mentioned one of the things they say, if, if something negative starts popping up, they'll say, well, that's good. It means you're getting to the surface this, this stuff that's bad and that we're going to get work through it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that having a, a good teacher is really very important because there may be indeed some kind of emotional issues coming up and perhaps the teacher is equipped to help you deal with this but uh, because otherwise and I'm thinking of and we mentioned this in the book that Deepak Chopra runs this his website and there's lots of people sometimes asking for advice about meditation, some of them who have been experiencing something difficult. And sometimes he gives really, really responsible advice, such as someone who was experiencing deep grief while meditating. Oh, just just chant something and it will eventually go away. Like, how does he know? How does he know that it will go away without knowing anything about this person? That's really, really responsible. So let's go back to this experiment you did with the prison. So there's been this, there's been meditation practice going on in the prison. There's all this anecdotal evidence that it's reduced recidivism. People, criminals, like were less angry, etc. When you guys went in there and looked at the research and did a study, what did you find? Could, did meditation change these these prisoners? Well, it really it really looks at how you're. Depends on how you're looking at it. Many things changes. We were particularly interested in looking at changes in emotions, if these people had more positive emotions, less negative emotions, 
if they were less anxious, if they were less aggressive, also if they had a better focus and an ability to withhold their impulses, which we know is associated with criminality. And and um, the answer is, I mean, it's sort of grayish in the sense that we got some of the positive results that we were expecting. People felt better. They had higher scores on positive effect, but they didn't really reduce their negative effect. They had lower stress and anxiety, but they didn't really have lower aggression. And there were some indications that they were able to withhold their impulses a little bit better. But again, it was this one was a weak result. If if indeed meditation and yoga could do that, that would be something quite important. Uh, but if you look at the larger literature, even on the effects on meditation, on attention, it's very, very mixed. The results aren't that great. So it sounds like it made the prisoners feel better, but not necessarily act better. Yeah, and that's a really, really big thing in in psychology. I mean, getting kind of some psychological good effects. I mean, you can invariably get something, but get people to behave in a different way, that's always much more difficult. Right, because uh, a lot there's a lot involved there. There's context, environment plays a huge role in how you behave or not. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Miguel, after doing all this research on meditation, like, what's your what's your final take on it? Like, should people run out and start meditating, or you know, should people feel guilty if they don't meditate? Who should meditate? <laughs> what, what's your take? So, one thing that we're still trying to work out is for whom meditation works better, and and worse. Once we know something more about that, we'd be able to give a, a much better answer to who should be doing this? To whom will it really will it really help? I I think what's really what keeps me doing things on meditation is that it's it's fascinating the way it's become not just a psychological or a health issue, it's really societal issue. Why have we become so interested in an inward technique? Are we using this in the best way? I think it's somehow tapping into into something good. It's it's tapping into a kind of idealism or romanticism that we still hold despite everything happening around us that isn't so great. So it's it's still tapping into that that resource of goodness and hope in us. And I think that's really, really valuable. The thing is, we know that meditation as an inward, inwards or reflecting technique, it's, it is inevitably limited. So what is it that we need to do to make it more effective? So for instance, now in the UK, I think it's the same in the US, lots of people trying to to get meditation programs in schools with children of various ages, as early as six. And again, this is being driven by, by a good idea, by the hope that this will allow children to deal better with anxiety, depression, to make them more, more resilient. But I think it's stopping short. We should be asking, what, how, how can this allow us to really pause for a second and think better? about how we're educating these kids. What is it that 
they need that we're not giving them. So the whole idea about mindfulness in particular is that it just allows us to, to stop. And we do need to stop because the way things are just ridiculous and unhealthy, right? So I wish that meditation could be used to give us a, a proper way of pausing and reflecting deeper. Right now, it's not leading to any deeper reflection in most cases. And if we get to that deeper level, it then leads us to the next stage, which is actually we can think about doing things differently and we do need other people, right? If we want to do things differently and for this to work at a level that extends beyond myself. So in that sense, I think there is something potentially good about about meditation. But within that possibility of stopping and making us think, I think psychologists are in a way not helping this because of all the focus on on the mental health issues that this helps with this this helps with that no it, it will help very little most people i think the best thing coming out of it is the possibility to stop and allow us to rethink rethink lots of stuff that is happening within us in our lives and around us which which really needs needs to be rethought carefully and and to be changed so I wish that we can use meditation more in that that wider context and not just looking within. So it sounds like meditation isn't an end, right? It's not a solution to the problems. It's it's a way for us to pause a bit so we can think about solutions to the problems, right? Like you mentioned the school kids. I, I've read that too, where they're really doing this in like inner city schools yeah. where you know kids have are facing a lot of stress at home, et cetera. And it's like, well, instead of solving the problems, you know, eliminating that stress, We'll just make the kids more mindful, right? And it's like, well, yeah, okay, you did that, yeah. but like, there's still things are still bad, right? Um, yeah. So maybe meditation can be like, well, stop, pause a moment, then we, that'll allow us to solve those larger problems. Yeah, I saw this. I mean, this was exactly what happened during the the sixties. There were lots of interesting ideas going on, but it was so individualistic at that stage that people were unable to get together and and make this ferment work as a whole, as a, as a societal whole. And the way things are being organized or, or disorganized with mindfulness, it's again, they're looking at it in a, in a micro way. So in a way, they're, they're throwing the baby out with, with the water. There's something potentially good about this, but the way we're using it is just not going to bring about anything other than disappointment. And, and this then leads me to think, well, after this, what will happen? What will come next? What will we will we attach our hopes to when we realize that meditation isn't going to to help us? So, bottom line, I think it sounds like if, if you wanted to give meditation a try, it can be useful, but it's only a tool. It's not going to be, be the solution to your problems. If you don't meditate, it sounds like it's it's okay. Like you shouldn't feel guilty for not meditating. No, you shouldn't feel guilty for not meditating. <laughs> Right. So I think, I think there's a lot of guilt. Like, well, you don't mindful meditate. You should be mindful. Okay. You shouldn't feel that. <laughs> well, Miguel, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work? Yeah. So I have, um, I have a website. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the Buddha pill uh, as well. There's a new edition coming out with some updated material. And um, there's, there's a number of, um, of programs, even a BBC Radio 4 documentary called Mindfulness and Madness, which may be interesting for those that are looking at the adverse events of meditation. 
yeah, have a look at my website. There's there's a number of, of things out there. Well, Miguel, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. My guest today was Miguel Farias. He is the co-author of the book, The Buddha Pill. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at miguelfarias.co. Dot UK. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash budapill, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Manly.